Welcome, everybody, to the second ever episode of The Right Side of Maybe, the podcast where we interview forecasters and talk to them about their background in forecasting, as well as some specific forecasts that they've made, their thinking behind them, and the ultimate result. Today, we are pleased to be joined by David Mannheim. David received his PhD in uh, public policy from the Pardee Rand Graduate School, focusing on risk analysis and decision theory. He has done work on a variety of grants and contracts uh, related to research uh, in existential risk mitigation, public health, computational modeling, and infectious disease epidemiology. He is also currently working as a lead researcher for One Day Sooner and doing work at the Foresight Institute. David is also a super forecaster working with Good Judgment Inc. and a top Metaculus forecaster, as well as an active member of the forecasting communities, both on Metaculus and on Twitter. So without further ado, thank you much for thank you so much for joining us, David. Yeah, happy to be here. So David, we uh, we brought you on to both talk about your background in forecasting, as well as your specific experience forecasting COVID-19 vaccines. Uh, but before we get to that COVID vaccine forecast that you did and sort of dive deep into that, let's talk about your background in the forecasting space. Um, sort of how and when were you first introduced to this idea of quantified forecasting? So I had definitely heard of the idea of um, forecasting and, and actually making predictions um, and taking that seriously. Um, but the first time I was really introduced to the idea was um, when the Good Judgment Project started and they posted a bunch of places saying, um, this looks really interesting. Um, you know, it's a, a geopolitical forecasting tournament. And I was in the process of getting ready to start graduate school in public policy and thought, well, this is relevant and interesting. And I have a bunch of free time because I'm not actually working right now and I'm not starting grad school. So I should do this. Um, and I got started and got hooked. And sort of what sold you on on the concept with regards to public policy? Was it being able to sort of get a better sense of how policies might have an impact before you implement them uh, as a way to sort of track existential risk? Um, like what was that sort of catalyst and the, and the sort of the core aspect of it that sold you on it? Yeah. So usefulness of forecasting was, uh, I think, is, is a really good point. It wasn't at all what I was interested in. Um, when I first got started, um, I, I thought it was kind of an interesting um, intellectual exercise, um, kind of a, a cool thing to do um, with, with my spare time. Um, I think that especially the type of thing that, that Good Judgment was initially forecasting in the geopolitical realm, I don't think it was particularly um, actionable to anybody outside of maybe the U.S. government, um, but I think that um, it was it was interesting. I think more recently, there's been a shift, uh, a very welcome shift to um, making forecasts on things that have uh, concrete and important implications. And I think that COVID is certainly one of the places where that happened. But I think that it's, uh, um, that, that's, it was always intended to be useful, but um, it only started being publicly useful, um, I think after it was clear that it worked in the first place, after Good Judgment Project concluded that it was super effective. So when you started um, to look at some of these Good Judgment questions, these geopolitical forecasting questions, um, did you sort of dive right in or were there certain skills that you felt you needed to hone in order to forecast more accurately? 
um, you know, or even maybe that came after you did that first sort of forecasting tournament, you thought about, you know, what, like just some of the skills that you thought were important for a forecaster. Um, can you speak a bit about that and so, sort of your process? Yeah, I, th I think um, it was um, partially fortuitous that I had um, already read um, Kahneman and Tversky's book, and I actually had been assigned um, the uh, more recent um, Thinking Fast and Slow um, book for, you know, before I started grad school, it was one of the summer reading assignments for everyone. Um, so I had, I had been kind of thinking about those things um, for a while. Uh, I think that um, one of the things that I hadn't done initially, but ran into in the book, I believe, and also other places was the idea of doing calibration training um, where um, actually spending some time, and I think it's really critical and underappreciated um, and really easy, but um, it's one of these things that um, most people um, can't actually tell you how likely things that they know a lot about are. So you ask somebody, hey, you drive to work every day. And they're like, yeah, every day. And you go, how long does it take you? And they say, oh, like 20 minutes. And you ask them, okay, so like, how likely is it that you get there in less than 20 minutes? And they'll say, oh, like, I don't know, 80%. And you're like, so 80% of the time you get there in less than the you know, normal amount of time that it takes to get you there. And they're like, yeah, probably. Like, they have, they have no, no idea. Like they haven't even thought about it in a way that would let them um, make a claim about how likely it is. Um, you know, the, the, the question you know, kind of strikes them as, as strange and, and unusual. You need to have um, some practice quantifying you know, basic things before you get into actually trying to forecast. And do you think that sort of that calibration is useful as that example you just gave and sort of having and uh, being able to take your ideas of probabilities and being able to convert them into numbers? Or do you think it's also a useful way to sort of center your understanding on a subject? Meaning, is it useful just to have calibration training at large? Or do you think there's also usefulness in calibrating yourself on specific questions. So if it's, yeah. if you're now going to forecast COVID, I'll take, you know, I should probably do a little bit of calibration on what I know about epidemiology and public health. Yeah. Calibration is definitely somewhat domain specific. Um, you know, there's the easy example when you do calibration training and they ask you something like, um, you know, how many um, goals did this um, football player, or soccer player, um, score in, you know, the World Cup in 1987. And I'm like, I, it's, it's, you know, it, it might be zero. It's probably not more than like, I don't know, 15 or 20. Like that seems like a really good upper bound. I don't know very much about soccer. I certainly don't know who this person is. So there's, there's a place where you can say like, okay, like I really have no idea. I need to have um, the ability to say, you know, this is what a reasonable bound looks like if I really don't know anything about the subject. Um, and then, yeah, I think that there are a lot of places where you have to have a pretty good grasp about how well you know the subject. Um, I don't know that you need to do calibration training specific to each topic. I think that by the time you, you have a pretty good grasp of what it is you know and what it is you're good forecasting, you can probably um, make a pretty good guess about how good you will be in some domain that either you do or don't know anything about. 
And then just quickly jumping off of that, um, how much time would you say that you spend calibrating and forecasting every week? Um, and do you break it up? You know, you might do a lot of forecasting on one question, a lot of work on one question, or do you try and break it up over a number of questions? One of our past guests talked about doing almost like speed chess on Metaculus and trying mm -hmm. to just grind through a bunch of questions to um, sort of cal calibrate themselves. So how, do you, how does your breakdown look? That's an interesting idea. Um, I actually, most weeks I probably spend half an hour or so updating forecasts. Um, occasionally, um, I will spend a bunch more time than that um, when there are new questions that I want to really um, take a deep dive into. It probably takes me, um, for complicated questions, it can take me half, a half an hour, 45 minutes to get to the point where I'm willing to make like a first guess. And then depending on how, um, how much I want to invest in it, you know, you can, you can spend, you know, you can spend all of your time working on your model if you really want to be forecasting a particular question very well. Um, for the COVID questions, I was spending more time on it. Um, when I was doing, when I was active doing um, forecasting good judgment project, I was probably spending five hours a week, at least, um, kind of looking up things and thinking about it. Um, now I'm very busy with lots of other things. So I'm not actually spending that much time forecasting new things. So building up on that, um, you know, some great forecasters like Tom Lipte, who's another super forecaster like yourself, says that there's no way to accurately forecast complex problems without a serious time commitment. Uh, on, on, on a Twitter post, he wrote, making a good forecast on a complex topic takes time. Anyone who says otherwise is lying. It is not possible to thoroughly evaluate if Russia will invade Ukraine, if COVID is seasonal, what employment will be, etc. in five minutes. Um, other super forecasters, such as Peter Stamp, have taken similar positions. Um, but as we were talking about uh, just a few seconds ago with Peter Herford and his speed chest, some good forecasters in encourage uh, experience and calibration by just making a lot of forecast, which for some people would only be possible if they don't spend a lot of time on each question. So what do you think is a minimal time an ambitious forecaster should invest in their initial forecast of any forecasting question that is not super easy? Um, what would it be for complex problems and sort of how would you tell which forecasting problems is complex and which is a simple one? So uh, that's a good question. I think there are a couple of pieces here. So the first one is um, there's a tremendous difference between being able to do, I'll say, better than the average person at, um, at forecasting something. And that's a very low bar to clarify. Like better than the average person is not like you're amazing at forecasting. Um, and even for fairly complex problems, um, I think you can probably get a reasonable idea of base rates and throw out a number um, in 10 minutes. Um, that's not going to get you a particularly amazingly well calibrated or particularly accurate um, number. But also, I think, as Peter would, would say, right, but just the practice of going through and figuring out what the base rate should be and, and doing that is valuable. Um, and, and I agree with him. Um, but there's a difference between um, kind of figuring out how, how to think through things and trying to do your best on a particular question. Um, 
And, and that gets me to, I think, the second part of my answer, which is um, there are lots of places where um, the best forecaster in the world um, and um, you know, a mediocre forecaster just don't do that differently. I mean, the, the obvious example is something like, um, you know, you, you have a, a die and you're going to roll it. And you ask me what the probability is that you roll a three. And I'll say it's about one in six. Um, and, you know, somebody who has taken high school probability should probably say the same thing. Um, there's not a lot you're going to do with, you know, getting really great base rates. Um, I think that if you were to ask something like, um, what's the probability that um, you know the you know, this dictator gets deposed this year? The answer is, look at base rates and just go with that. And maybe you have some better insight, but you're probably going to do really well just picking base rates and and going with that. Um, but um, to do a really good job, you should probably figure out a lot more about the question and think through it much better. And and that depends. You know, how much uh, effort you should put into a question depends on both um, how much, you know, what, what the value of information is for, for looking into it more. Um, for DICE, it's really, really low. There's nothing you're going to do that'll change your mind. Um, for some questions, it's incredibly high. Um, you know, what, what's the likelihood that this person will be reelected? And the answer is, I don't know when the election is or who it is that's running or if there's polling on it. Like you, you want to look into all of that before you start, um, you know, saying anything. Um, and at a certain point, then you, you should get to the point where it's, it is, you know, quickly diminishing returns where you, you can't say a lot more that's really useful. Um, so I, I think that, yeah, for complex questions, half an hour to an hour is kind of the, the bare minimum for, um, coming up with something that's credible. The other thing that matters in this domain is how much do you care? And that, that seems like a, a strange question for a, a forecaster because really for if you want to forecast well, the answer is you should care about your forecast because you want to do well forecasting. Um, but practically there's a big difference between um, I'm making a public forecast and I'm trying to do my best to um, improve my Breyer score and um, I'm trying to guess how long it will take me to drive to work. And one of those, I just don't need to put very much time into. Um, it doesn't make a huge difference unless I'm trying to figure out, you know, am I going to be there in time for a critical meeting? Um, so I, I think that that's the, the other piece. I think that people interested in getting into forecasting, yeah, definitely spend some time doing really basic forecasting, um, but also probably spend a little bit of time, you know, some, some of your time, uh, diving deep and seeing what it's like to really do a great job or trying to do a great job forecasting. And when it comes towards spending that time, do you have sort of an idea on how that time should be spent? So a, a colleague of ours who helps us with this podcast, uh, Mikhail Dabrowski, um, you'll know from the first episode, he actually helped us come up with the name, The Right Side of Maybe. Uh, he sort of came up with this idea of a minimal valuable forecast, which is defined as sort of enough effort being put into a forecast to be able to gain experience and calibration to improve your forecasting. So not only putting an effort to be more accurate, but putting in the effort to then take that forecast and be able to actually improve your overall forecasting capabilities. Um, do you have any sort of idea on what sort of uh, steps and characteristics would be part of that concept of a minimal uh, valuable forecast? 
Yeah. So I think I really like the idea. I think I think that it's exactly right. I think that it's also um, critically dependent on the person forecasting. So um, for somebody who hasn't forecasted before, the um, the minimum viable forecast is just calibration training. Just you know figure out some you know basic things. It doesn't need to be about something that hasn't happened yet. Just spend some time getting to the point where you're good enough at this to be able to um, figure out what's happening. Um, in, in your head, when you say 50%, what does that mean? Um, you know, when you say 90, you're 90% certain, does that mean that it's like, you know, it, it happens 70% of the time? Because if so, you need to change what it is that you, what you say. Um, so I, I think that at the, at the beginning, that's, that's where you need to focus. I think that as you get more comfortable with the basics, um, two things strike me as critical. The first one is, um, when learning a new skill, you want feedback quickly. Forecasting something that's a decade off um, doesn't give you feedback about what it is, you know, how well you do. Um, and so I think that it's less valuable as a way of improving other than just as a, as a way to do deliberate practice. It can be perfectly good deliberate practice, but it, it's not going to get you feedback quickly. Um, forecasting a bunch of relatively simple questions is probably a really good way to get to the point where you have enough feedback so that you have some idea um, how confident you should be and what types of things um, change your mind about the forecast. So I think the, the you know, step two after you do calibration training is try and forecast some things. Step three is probably reading what other forecasters have said um, in the comments after you've made your forecast and figuring out like, oh, did that change my mind? Have I, have I figured out something that I didn't before? Um, and then I think the step after that is trying to figure out where you would find information that would do that for yourself. Um, so you know, that, that's getting to the point where you're actually doing research to try and answer questions. And I think that's really valuable, but it's you know, a step or two after getting to the point where you're um, doing an okay job. Um, by the time you're comfortable forecasting, the minimum valuable forecast is going to be a pretty intense exercise in um, trying to figure out what types of information can give you um, useful um, marginal accuracy. Um, I, I don't think that I could, I don't think that I gain a lot by um, scrolling through Metaculus and finding questions that I haven't answered yet and just like, Dashing off, I, I I would probably make points. This is an issue with Metaculus scoring, um, but but I would probably make some points. But um, but it's not a useful way for me to improve. And where in that process do you think is writing out like somewhere explicitly your thinking behind the forecast? Because I think you know that is really useful in terms of being able to go back and understand your forecast so that you can sort of score it retrospectively as well. Does that sort of come once you, once you're reading other people's comments on Metaculus, that's around the time when you should be doing it. Um, do you have any thoughts? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Anytime, anytime you're, you are getting feedback on how well you did, um, a record of what it is you were thinking when you made the guess is valuable. Um, if you're making lots of, kind of short-term forecasts to just get into the mode of being able to forecast things, um, then it's less critical just because what it is you were thinking is pretty straightforward. Um, 
I think that the community estimate is a little bit too low. And then you look back and you say, oh, I was wrong. Um, why, did I think, why did I think that it was too low? Um, and, and you can kind of do that without lots of introspection. Um, by the time you're saying, I think that um, the community is um, di you know, discounting the, um, the statements of the CEO of SpaceX too much and is putting too much weight on the historical record, um, you know, by the time you're, you're actually going through and spending time thinking through the question, um, yeah, you should be writing it down because um, you know, even a couple of days later, you're unlikely to remember exactly what you were thinking uh, if you want to be able to improve, if you wanna look back and figure out how well you did. Awesome. Um, so Clay, I mean, do you want to sort of introduce or get into now the meat of the episode being the, uh, the forecast that we wanted to have David come on here to, to talk about? Yeah. So, um, David, you made a very um, interesting forecast uh, for good judgment on COVID vaccines when uh, I, I believe the framing of the question is when the U.S. Uh, would approve COVID vaccines, when they would go out of phase three, be produced and ready for distribution. Is that... I think it was when 25 million doses would be delivered, I think was the specific um, of an approved vaccine would be delivered. Um, Got it. Um, so yeah, could you just provide yeah. a little bit of framing on what the options for the forecast was, how you made your initial forecast, uh, and sort of what were the major factors that you were considering in terms of when the US would be able to um, have produced and delivered 25 million vaccines? Yeah, so uh, to start, this, this was um, back in, uh, this was, I guess, a year ago, they, they asked this question. So when it was still very unclear um, whether there would be a vaccine soon, um, which one, what the vaccine timelines looked like, there were a lot of people who said, you know, vaccines take five years to develop. There's no way to do better than that. Um, this is, you know, we're, we're in this for the long haul. Um, and uh, there was a lot of, um, th there were a number of public statements by people in public health that um, I think, unfortunately, we found over the course of the pandemic, um, people in public health are very happy to be, um, let's say, poorly calibrated um, in the service of managing expectations. Um, and so I think that there was a lot of caution from you know, responsible public figures saying, this is gonna take a while, don't, don't expect vaccines soon. Um, and I don't know that it's completely unreasonable for somebody to have uh, um, said that in a position like that, but also I think that it was um, misleading. Like I, I don't think that even they really thought that it would take that long. Um, that said, um, the consensus was that this was going to be, um, you know, maybe late 2021, maybe 2022. It was it was very unclear when they would um, actually be able to get vaccines um, made and delivered. And in the midst of a lot of skepticism, I thought people were being super um, conservative about what they thought the timeline would be, given the need to rush vaccines. Now, I'll say, I think I was 
right and wrong about different parts of this in, I think, mostly offsetting ways. I thought that the FDA would be much more willing to approve vaccines, um, given that things were like going really bad, um, that they would be willing to kind of stick their neck out a little bit. Um, that was wrong. Um, I also thought that um, the timelines would be um, shorter than I think most people were saying, but I didn't expect it to be quite as quick. If, if um, as we now know, the mRNA vaccines were designed um, two or three months before this question showed up, three months before this question showed up. Um, so um, if, if we had realized how, how much of the work had already been done, um, I think I would have been even more optimistic. Um, but essentially my, my, my reasoning was that there were a lot of shots on goal and uh, you know, there were um, close to a hundred um, different vaccines that were under development during the course of 2020. Um, even at the beginning, it was clear that there were um, scores of vaccines that were being developed. Um, and uh, they were all in kind of um, try their best to do things as quickly as they possibly could mode. Um, and people's references for um, their, their base rates, um, I think, were poorly conceived because they were looking at the problem not granularly enough. So in this case, you could ask, oh, what's the, you know, what, what's the um, expected time from um, people starting work on a, a new vaccine to when it's finally approved? Um, and the answer is, yeah, it's, it's a long time. It's almost always a long time. Um, that's you know, a really good um, kind of piece of background information. But then if you start breaking it out, you realize which things slow, slow down the process. And a lot of what slows down the process were all of the things that they were already saying very early on, they were going to rush as much as possible. Um, it was very clear um, in March that everybody was trying to push through combined phase one and phase two trials, that they were trying to um, uh, there were a bunch of places that they parallelized the animal trials um, for, for efficacy with the sa initial safety trials in humans. Like there was a lot of stuff that they were doing to actually make this happen as quickly as possible because there was a pandemic. Um, and I think that using base rates um, kind of in a not granular way from a set of incidents that are not at all comparable was just misleading. I think that people um, weren't thinking through this. Um, and I think that they were taking the pronouncements that people made, um, you know, the, the responsible people's pronouncements, um, too seriously or too literally, I guess is the yeah, so when you gave your initial forecast, it seems like you gave about an 85% chance that between October 2020 and September 2021 is when the 25 million doses would be delivered. Whereas on Good Judgment, it looks like they had about 85% being after October 2021 all the way into April 2022. Um, that's where you sort of started off. Could you sort of talk to us about... Um, how you updated 
that forecast over time? Um, what were the sort of significant events that you used to update your forecast? Um, as you go through it, there are some questions that we have about some of the particular updates that you've made because yeah. um, what's really interesting about your forecast is that on in in July you said 95 roughly percent likelihood that between October and March, uh, October 2020, March 2021 is when the 25 million doses would be delivered, which is of course what happened. But then things changed. So why don't you walk us yeah. through your, your updating process through this forecast? Okay. And just quickly also, if you could so, speak to where you got your information from, I think it's really interesting to hear you talk about what you were looking at and what you were sort of discarding. And I think that's really useful sort of mental heuristic for forecasters. Yeah. Um, so the, the first thing um, I want to say, see, this is this is where I'd look better if I if I hadn't shared, you know, what it is that I had said at different points in time. I could have just said at the beginning, I, I thought the right thing and it turned out exactly that way. I'm amazing. Um, but it turns out that that, you know, you guys asked me to pick a question to talk about. Um, and um, it's not a fair sample. There are there are questions that I have bombed on, um, but you know, you let me pick, so I pick something that that I did well. We'll just have um, you back on for those. No, oh, well, um, I'm I'm not giving you a list of things I predicted then. Um, but I, my first um, initial estimate was based on my understanding of base rates and inside view. Um, so I've found over time that. Um, I tend to be overly reliant on inside view. Um, there's, there's an interesting, I'll, I'll switch topics vastly and then get back to this quickly. Um, there's an interesting um, theorem by Robert Auman, the Auman Agreement Theorem, um, which you may be familiar with. But it, it basically says that um, rational agents with unbounded computational resources, and et cetera, um, can't agree to disagree. So two people talking to one another who actually have enough time to um, go back and forth about why they think what they think um, should eventually end up really agreeing about everything. Um, that's not practically what happens. You, you do find people disagree, often for good reasons, um, you know, partially you know, when somebody makes a prediction that differs from mine. Um, one of the reasons that I disagree is because um, I often think I'm just going to be a better forecaster than them at this. I'm, you know, I, I'm going to do a good job. And if that's true, then um, you know, I should not wait there. Um, I should not wait their opinion as highly as I wait my own. Um, and when I'm working with a group of super forecasters, I should probably give their opinion some reasonable amount of weight uh, because there are plenty of times where I'm wrong and they're right. So after my initial um, estimate, I started reading through and looking at what other people had said and what they thought. Um, and I, I made arguments um, for why it is that I thought that they were, um, that they were too pessimistic. Um, and they updated slightly on the basis of what it is that I said. Um, and despite that, they were pretty comfortable with saying it would take a lot longer than I thought it would. Um, so one of the things that I do to kind of um, correct for inside view is um, take some kind of weighted average of 
my estimate and the community mean. Um, and by giving the community mean some non-trivial weight, I'm kind of insulating myself, my inside view from uh, my overconfidence in kind of the, the internal model. Um, I did that. Um, I updated significantly to think that there was some weight on um, a much longer timeline. And then I waited to find more evidence. Um, and there was a period where there was very little um, useful news about what the progress was. Um, all of the vaccine, you know, the internal vaccine development stuff was um, ongoing, but there wasn't a lot to say because um, companies aren't a, aren't allowed to comment publicly about um, you know trials that are ongoing, and um, there wasn't a lot of news. This was also um, in in my outside world when I started writing about um, an idea that I had for how it is that the government should start pouring massive amounts of money into uh, vaccine development. Um, and as I was writing about that and talking about that, the Gates Foundation showed up and said, yeah, we're actually going to do kind of that thing. Um, they didn't end up doing it, but, but there, were, there were a lot of people who said, yeah, we're going to just start pouring money into vaccines. Um, and as, as will probably not surprise very many people, pouring money on problems um, doesn't necessarily fix them, but it certainly removes lots of the um, obvious barriers. Uh, so there were lots of things that just made it really start getting clearer that there was going to be this really intense push. Um, in the middle of the year, the discussion started getting um, more political about what would happen with the vaccines because President Trump was very interested in um, an October surprise in, in you know, a vaccine getting approved in October and everybody saying, President Trump saved all of our lives, we need to reelect him. It didn't happen that way, but there was a lot of push for a timeline and the fact that he, you know, among other things, the fact that he seemed to think and, and his advisors more than him, but th there were a lot of people who took seriously the idea that there might be announcements in October made me think that in fact, the timelines looked much better than people were still saying, and, and even then, there were a lot of um, there were a lot of people saying, um, you know, well, yeah, but it's going to take a lot, a lot longer than we thought. Um, and then, yeah, so that, that's that's kind of takes us through mid year. Yeah, so I think that's it's interesting that you bring up <clears throat> the politization up. Uh, politicization, oh, anyway, um, politics being infused in the uh, vaccine process, because looking at your forecast to the biggest declines happen with coincidentally, maybe, or maybe not after Operation Warp Speed is announced in May, you then dip your forecast. And when Operation Warp Speed announced a vaccine doses going out in January, and then July is when um, July into August, you have your big dip down from 95 all the way down to a low of 45 that the vaccine gets approved between October 2020 and March 2021, which is when there's sort of a new timeline for Operation Warp Speed that gets announced, which is having the vaccines ready at around the end of the year with then distribution taking three months afterwards. And that's actually a, a in retrospect, a, 
pretty accurate timeline. 11 months from starting would have had the first vaccine approved in December. Uh, I believe the first vaccine was approved around December. And distribution now, we're just reaching the point where supply is outstripping demand. So distribution took four months, three and a half months instead of the three months that they stated, which was probably due to political actors getting distracted with other things in the meantime, maybe, or other factors. Mm. But it, it was still a pretty accurate forecast that came out around that time, which then coincides with your decline. Do you think that there was political bias going on, just too much noise around that time? It's it, it's just interesting in, in retrospect how your declines sort of happen at the same time when positive signals from the government were coming um, yeah. with regards to the vaccine. So I think th there are a couple of things here. The first one is um, everyone um, in the forecasting community, at least, um, took statements coming from the Trump administration with um, a grain of salt is probably vastly understating it, but but ignored, ignored things the Trump administration said. Um, and I think that in many ways, this was a reasonable response to the fact that they had um, problems with honesty. Um, but at the same time, I think that people were also um, thinking very strongly that there was, that because the responsible Democrats were saying that it was going to take a really long time um, and the irresponsible Trump administration was saying it wouldn't take very long, that Trump was just going to be wrong and the Democrats were going to be right. Um, and ignoring any other information about the question, uh, which I think was, was where they, they failed, because there was plenty of external information about this, um, like what it is that the drug companies would say. And the drug companies had plenty of reason to be optimistic, but also plenty of reason not to make up timelines that didn't match what they thought was plausible because investors don't really like it when companies you know, make really optimistic projections that they then fail to meet. Um, so I, I think that there was a lot of information there. The, the other piece of the political um, picture was uh, questions about how distribution would be managed. And I think that there was concern that, uh, that the vaccine would start being manufactured um, once they approved it. And, and by the way, this was historically, this is what happened. You'd, you'd wait until a vaccine is approved and then you'd start manufacturing because you're not going to throw a ton of money at making something that you don't know is going to be approved. And um, thankfully, um, the companies uh, decided without government backing for this because they didn't, because the government didn't actually um, handle this well. Um, but without government backing, they decided to produce tons of doses, even though if the doses had been had not been approved, the government wouldn't have paid them for it. The, the contracts that they signed were, the government said, we want to buy them if they're approved, um, which puts some kind of bad incentives on companies, but that's a, a different discussion. Um, so there were lots of places where it was clear that they were starting to, to, to make the vaccines early. It was clear that the US was going to get um, first dibs on the vaccines, despite the fact that there are very good equity 
arguments for why it is that the U.S. shouldn't have taken tons of doses. Um, but the, you know, what ended up happening was, yeah, that that um, they got approved, um, basically in line with what the optimistic projections were, and distribution. And you said it it took months for distribution to uh, to 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 happen for, for distribution to catch up to where it is the demand was. That's true, but also 25 million doses is nowhere near um, where demand was. Demand was way higher than that. Um, you know, they, they were going to hit, and, and towards the end, it was a little bit unclear exactly when the, you know, they would, they would pass the bar for having delivered enough vaccines. But yeah, it, it was, you know, it, a couple of shipment delays um, could have could have put, pushed it past the end, um, you know. It, it's not completely um, impossible that some some differences in how it is that the um, how it is that that shipping happened or how it is that um, production happened could have could have pushed it towards the next bin, you know, happening in March instead of in. After March instead of in February. And so, sort of continuing to look back at your um, forecast, I was wondering, you know, what do you think some of the strongest aspects of your forecast were um, in terms of, you know, whether it's certain sources that you're looking at that other people were missing um, or certain assumptions that you made that ended up being correct? And where do you think, uh, you know, your forecast could have used more work if you were to do it again? Things would have changed. Um. Yeah, so I, I think that one of the things that I got right early on was, as I said before, um, kind of properly breaking out the components of the question. Um, one of the things that a lot of people um, discounted early on that I highlighted that I think I was exactly right on was um, there's a real possibility in vaccine um, production or vaccine approval that something goes wrong and a vaccine is delayed or found to be unsafe. Uh, and, and that was a very real possibility and happened with some of, you know, there were some early stage trials of not the front runners where the, you know, it turned out that it was unsafe or it turned out that it didn't work as well as it needed to. Um, um, the the problem with looking at that is when you have 70 candidates, very few of them are going to end up in a position where um, you know, they get seriously delayed. Or, or even if most of them get seriously delayed, it's incredibly unlikely that um, all of them do. And um, kind of the structure, kind of the probabilistic structure of when you have 70 candidates running for something is that um, some of them are going to make it through, even if the probability of any one of them doing well is relatively low. Um, so I, I had said that very, very early on, um, I think in my initial um, forecast. Um, the, the other thing that I um, think I got right um, was looking at what the, right, what the different um, what the different vaccines were doing and where they were in the trial process. 
um, because I think that there was a lot of um, a lot of discussion about how well you know the the amount of time that it takes to do phase three trials is typically this long. You know, after you finish phase two, then and 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 the reason why it happens the way that it does um, is disappointing but understandable. That um, most of the time you don't start planning your phase three trial until you're done with your phase two trial and you have all of the data and you've analyzed it and you've made a bunch of decisions on that ba on the basis of what it is you found in phase two. Um, some of the issues with like exactly what dosing level was used for vaccines in the phase three trial were because everything was moving really, really fast um, kind of um, in other scenarios that would have been irresponsibly fast here. It was exactly what was needed. Um, but the point is they moved really fast. They took not shortcuts, but um, they took no extra time to do the things that might have made it um, slightly easier or slightly more certain that they wouldn't um, waste money or time doing something um, that didn't pan out. So you could imagine that um, after the phase two trials, they launched the phase three trials, and then they look back at their phase two data and they realize, oh wait, we need to do something different in our phase three trial. Um, we have to scrap what we've done so far. And that would be very expensive, but also um, they would have done that. So there, there were a lot of places where I think um, they were moving quickly. The places that I got it wrong, um, so I, I said already, I thought that the FDA would be more reasonable about approving vaccines earlier, at least for emergency use um, in the highest risk populations. Um, and they were not at all willing to do that. In fact, even after it was very obvious that they were um, safe and effective, um, the FDA took kind of, they worked hard, but they did not take any shortcuts at all in any of their validation processes um, to make sure that they had checked every box and filled out every form that they needed to. Um, and that takes a lot of time. The other thing that I think I got that, that I didn't pay enough attention to that um, I think I should have, though also ended up not being a problem, is that the Russian and Chinese vaccines were ready super early and they started being used incredibly early. And it turns out that both of them were at least okay. Um, you know, we got a split between very good and kind of okay. Um, but both of them are well over the bar that people placed originally for, we needed to be at least 50% effective. Um, and that was, that was the bar everybody expected to need to pass. And it was only after you started seeing, um, you know, numbers in the 90% range that people said, well, so, you know, we, we need vaccines that are super effective. We can't go with something that's only marginally effective. Um, so I, I think that I paid too little attention to the fact that there were vaccines that were going much, much faster. If, if things had, had been managed politically very differently, and this wasn't possible even at the beginning of the pandemic for lots of political reasons, but I wasn't paying enough attention to, to even have thought about the fact that I should have discounted this. Um, the, the, you know, both the Russian and Chinese vaccines could have been mass produced anywhere. They, they are not RNA vaccines. They could in fact be 
produced by factories somewhere else pretty, um, pretty easily. Um, you know, that could have been kind of the answer. Um, politically, that would have been um, somewhere between um, impossible and um, laughable. But you know, I, I think that um, that there was there there was those dynamics that I wasn't really paying attention to. Um, Great. Um, so now we want to just move on to a few sort of concluding questions that we have for you. Um, and then at the end, um, tell everyone where they can, uh, find you, uh, and, uh, see more of what you do. Um, what recommendations do you have for forecasters on a sort of very high level who want to be on the right side of maybe, um, do you have books or skills to recommend, um, traits when forecasting, such as maybe ignoring the median until you've made your forecast? Do you just have, yeah, uh, meta level um, recommendations? Yeah. So uh, the first thing I'll say is um, the gap between um, most people's forecasting ability and um, super forecasters is very wide. Um, most of that gap can be narrowed very quickly with very basic, um, you know, kind of a very basic understanding. Um, really tricky, complex questions like this one um, are an unreasonable test, partially because um, the bins for when it would happen were picked based on kind of a fairly extensive amount of domain knowledge and, and th thought the people who put the questions together really thought about like what it is that the plausible uh, ranges were um, and, and did a pretty good job at picking bins that um, were reasonable. You could imagine somebody saying, you know, will, will the um, vaccines be delivered in 2021, 2022, 2023, 2024, 2025? And like those would be the bins. Um, and uh, that would have been um, a much easier question. Um, I think that. Um, yeah, doing a much better job is, is mostly about um, kind of those basic skills that I talked about before. Um, in terms of recommendations for getting even better than that, I think that um, one of the best things to do is to jump in and participate, not just in forecasting, but in the conversations between forecasters. And, and it's a very open community. Um, you know, uh, I think you guys are going to say that you can get in touch with me on Twitter. Um, I talk about forecasting questions all the time. There are a lot of people who do that. The, the comment section on Metaculus is, um, for, for very active questions, is absolutely a goldmine of analysis. Um, reading through that is fantastic practice for figuring out how you should think about things. Um, I think that the two things that I would highlight um, as absolutely critical things that people should um, be willing to think about. I, I saw a quote recently that I really liked. Um, I'd much rather be wrong yesterday than be wrong tomorrow. Um, you, you get to, you know, if you want to be a good forecaster, you have to be really comfortable with getting things wrong and realizing you got things wrong and changing your mind, or at the very least afterwards, figuring out what it is that you did wrong. Um, so I think that's the, the most critical thing I would advise. Um, there are tons of books that I think are perfectly um, good. I don't think that um, any of them are 
going to do nearly as much for people in terms of improving their forecasting skill as jumping in and getting engaged. And then we're curious, um, do your forecasting skills and forecasting practices in general have any impact on your personal life? So, you know, you brought up the example of um, forecasting time to get to work. I mean, do you really do these things on, like on a day-to-day -day basis? Um, and does it make it harder also to do it in your personal life versus yeah. you know, these exogenous ideas? So I'll, I'll answer another question first that I think is, is useful, which is, um, I, I do, I, what are my like worst forecasting mistakes? Like where have I done really badly? And the answer is things that I'm too personally invested in. Now, when I say too personally invested in, I don't mean how long it takes for me to get to work. Um, two places that I was horribly miscalibrated and just could not kind of shake my inside view and pay attention to other people's opinions and think through the issue clearly were Middle East politics. I'm currently living in Israel. Middle East politics are not one of those things that I like kind of can easily sit back and, and, and think through. I, I've gotten slightly better at this. Um, and the other one was I, I did some work um, while I was at working in Good Judgment Project. I also did some work on um, cryptocurrency um, related stuff um, at the Rand Corporation. Um, and had really strong inside views. And every prediction I made about crypto was like horrible. I'm so happy that I wasn't, wasn't actually putting money on these things because I, I would have, um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that I had food to put on the table while I was in grad school because if I had been putting money on my crypto bets, I would have been um, in poverty. So I, I think it's really easy to find area, and I think that this is valuable. Like if you find an area you're really bad at forecasting, um, don't spend lots of time trying to like nail that down. Um, you know, admit that you're bad at that. Um, personal forecasts sometimes are in this area and sometimes are not. Um, so there are places where um, I, I, I do not forecast things about my, aside from the fact that they're difficult to resolve, I don't forecast things about like personal relationships. But I absolutely forecast things about what it is that's happening in my personal life, what it is that I'm going to be doing professionally, what it is that I um, could be doing. And, and part of the reason I do that is because I think it's good forecasting practice. But a lot of the reason I do that is because um, it's really valuable to try and sit back and you know, dispassionately um, look at like, oh, like I'm working on these three projects. How impactful do I think they're going to be? And then, but no, like really, how impactful do I think they're going to be? And then, oh, I'm working on these three projects. I should be working on these two projects because one of these best case just isn't going to be that important or interesting or valuable. Um, or sometimes it's going to be really fun. So I don't mind that it's, you know, like there, there, there are reasons to do things that are um, not related to that. Um, so I think that there's a lot of value in um, stepping back and, and thinking about that. Um, I know in medium for that is forecasting. Yeah. I was just going to ask, and I, I, I know in medium that you post sort of all the forecasts that you make, including ones about your life. Do you, have you noticed then an accuracy difference between personal forecasts and, um, let's say non middle East forecasts? Um, uh, it's it's a small sample. Um, I, I, I there's been like some variance, but it's it's not tremendously different. Um, my my forecasting ability in the types of personal things that I actually forecast hasn't been tremendously better or worse. Though, um, 
yeah, we could have a long discussion about the appropriateness of comparing prior scores across domains. Um, it, you, you shouldn't is the, the short answer. Um, so yeah, I, I, I do make personal forecasts. I do pay attention to them. Uh, but I, what I was gonna say is, um, it's the framing I use to think about what it is that I'm doing and how well I think it's going to turn out. Um, doing it as a forecast instead of, you know, sitting down and talking it through with somebody else or um, asking for feedback from a boss. Um, th those are all valuable ways of doing kind of the same thing. Um, I find this kind of fits my persona as a forecaster. Great. Well, David, this has been a wonderful podcast episode. Uh, thank you so much for all the time, all the answers, all the wisdom you've shared with us. Uh, where can people find you um, and what sort of projects are you working on right now? Um, where can people find me? You can find me um, on Twitter more often than I probably um, should be there. Uh, David Mannheim, uh, at David Mannheim. Um, spelled the same as my name, uh, coincidentally. Um, and uh, um, what other things am I working on? I'm working on a bunch of things related to um, post-COVID, um, what it is that needs to happen to reduce risks in the future, um, and some things about kind of long-term future of humanity and other types of risks that um, we need to be paying attention to. Um, I think that there's a, a bit of a window of opportunity to um, use some of the um, reaction to COVID as a way to actually improve things about the way that um, people uh, think about risks and prepare for them. So I, I'm working on a couple of things with um, a number of others, both in biosecurity and uh, in systemic risks more generally. Well, I hope one that... day sooner funded research. Sorry, the one so, day oh, sooner funded research, the paper that you're working on. Um, one day sooner, yeah. One day sooner research is um, more uh, closely focused on human challenge trials, which are one thing that should have been done. Is it are now ongoing? Um, should have been done much earlier. Um, there was a lot of um, yeah, there, there was a lot of hesitancy to do um, challenge trials, despite the fact that they are a um, kind of bog standard research method that's been used for decades and decades with almost no kind of serious um, concerns about how they're used. Um, I think lots of people hadn't heard of them before COVID and were suddenly like, using human volunteers, that, that sounds horrible. You, you know, ignoring somehow the fact that all um, medical research uses, well, all applied clinical research kind of needs to use humans because that's who you're investigating. Um, there are unique risks there, but um, yeah, so we're doing some work on assessing those risks and understanding the history of challenge trials and pushing for um, if, God forbid, that this happens again in the relatively near future, um, it should not take us uh, more than a year to decide that we should launch challenge trials. Um, we could have had vaccines even faster. Yeah, because what they had the Moderna and Pfizer ready by end of January. That's when they had the um, first set it ready. And I would have been indescribably happy to have been too pessimistic on this, this question. That would have been a wonderful thing for humanity. Um, yeah. And hopefully we invest in existential risk because what is it? It's um, preventing a pandemic would have been like 48 
billion dollars a year over over 10 years to do all the preparation beforehand yeah. and now it's been six trillion in the u.s alone but you know i'm uh, sure next time we'll get it right i i admire your confidence <laughs> I, I i hope i hope that we do all right everyone that was the right side of maybe with david manheim find him on twitter at david manheim david thank you so much thank you this was a lot of fun